are studying the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, comes right after Genesis. Why, why should we study Exodus? Uh, the reason that we're studying Exodus this semester is because it is the true story that helps us make sense of our own lives. Exodus is a true story that helps us make sense of our own lives. You, you may not realize this about yourself yet, but, but story is actually the way that you make sense of your life. The way that you understand everything that you experience um, is, is through story. It's through the story that you imagine yourself to be living in. You, you may not remember this firsthand, but maybe you've heard um, from folks who are older than you how different groups of people responded to the same event um, on 9-11. Some people responded to 9-11 and they said things like, America got what was coming to it. Right? America is full of bad people doing bad things, and, and this happened because it's God's judgment on America. That's how some people responded. Other people responded and said, no, 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 that's not it. America, we're the good guys. The terrorists are the bad guys. And this is just a classic case of good versus evil, and eventually good will win. Right? But, but both of those are stories. Right? The, the story that the people were living in is actually how they made sense of that tragedy. You do this in your everyday lives, in your own lives. Some of you occasionally underperform academically, whether to your own standards or your parents' standards for you. And so the same thing happens to you, but you interpret that, you respond to that differently based on the story that you're living in. So some of you, when you underperform academically, you dissolve into depression. You just sort of resign to it and you go to fairly dark places internally. On the other hand, others of you, when you underperform academically, um, you are you like dig in your heels, and you beat yourself up, and you vow to never let it happen again. You work yourself into the ground. Now, why did different people respond to the same thing in different ways? It's because of the story that you're living in. Some of you, the story that you're living in is that um, what you have learned about yourself, whether from your parents or other people or your friends, what you have learned to believe about yourself is that you perpetually screw things up. And that everything you touch eventually gets ruined. And so, when you underachieve at something, the story that you're telling yourself is, oh, well, of course. And you feel kind of hopeless. And that's why you go to this dark place internally. is because you think, well, this was just inevitable. This was always going to happen because everything I touch gets ruined. But others of you grew up thinking, I, I am truly exceptional. And so when you underachieve, it throws you off and you don't know what to do um, because it's inexplicable to you. But you see how both of these things, the same thing is happening to different people and they're responding in different ways because they are making sense of their world in light of the story that they feel like they're living. Occasionally, an event in your story looms so large that it becomes the lens through which you see everything. Like one event becomes, becomes the thing, the defining moment of your life, and everything else is lived in light of that event. Think about Harry Potter for a second. Um, we should all think about Harry Potter with some regularity, so let's think about Harry Potter, right? The beginning of Harry Potter's life. He's just a tiny little Harry Potter baby. And the Dark Lord, Voldemort, hears this prophecy that there's this baby and that this baby is going to be a threat to his rise to power, and so he seeks out Harry and attempts to kill Harry. Mallory's like, I don't know if he's getting the details right. Sorry, it's she totally said that. I did not. <laughs> I feel a lot of pressure right now, Mallory. You can tell me later what I get wrong. Later. Okay, thank you. Um, 
So Voldemort comes, and he comes after Harry, right? But Harry, um, his mother, covers over him with her love, casts some sort of spell. You should probably be telling this story, Mallory. And so his assassination attempt fails because of her love, and that becomes the defining moment of his life. He's marked, right? He has the scar, the lightning scar on his forehead because of that. And literally everything else that happens in Harry's life happens because of that moment, is interpreted through that moment. Who he is, what his purpose in life is, where he's going, who he's friends with, how he spends his time, where he goes to school, everything is interpreted because of that particular event. Exodus functions the same way in the life of God's people. It is the event It is the lens through which God's people understand themselves. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, the kings, um, the leaders of God's people, they hearken back to the events that happen in this book. And they're speaking to God's people and they're saying, this is how you know who you are. You are the people that are defined by this event, the things that happen in this book. This is how you know who you are. This is how you know who God is. This is how you know what your purpose is. This is how you know uh, what it means to be God's people in the midst of the world. Like, it is the lens. But it's not just the lens in the Old Testament. It's the lens in the New Testament. Over and over again, the writers of the New Testament, even Jesus himself, refers back to the events that happen in this particular book and say, listen, do you want to understand who Jesus is? Do you want to understand what Jesus has come to do? Look at the Exodus. Look at what God did in the book of Exodus, and that is the paradigm. That is the lens for who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So what the book of Exodus is actually doing is it is inviting us to see it as our story as well, as a new lens for us to understand who we are and who God is and what it means to follow him. And like Uh, Most of the good stories in our day, this particular story begins in a fairly dark and dystopian way. So we're going to dive right in. Exodus chapter 1, it's printed in your handout for you. Let's look together, read together God's Word. You can follow along in your handout. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin... Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it tonight. Lord Jesus, we do ask for your help. I need your help. We need your help. Uh, There are some hard things in this passage, some confusing things. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would have to say from us this evening, from this particular passage. Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do and bring the dead to life in us? It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen. So there's two particular themes that I want to draw out that I want to pay attention to, two themes of this passage that I want to look at tonight. And those are this, uh, threat and hope. So we're going to look at the threat and we're going to look at the hope. Um, Let me just warn you, uh, this first point about the threat is much, much longer than the second point. So if you feel like I'm really rambling on the first point, you're worried this is going to be a 90-minute sermon, don't worry. Point number two is much shorter than point number one. So firstly, the threat. What is the threat that is facing Israel here in this passage. Simply put, it is slavery and disintegration. That's the threat that God's people are facing here in this passage. Israel, God's chosen people, are under severe oppression, facing annihilation, and Pharaoh is literally throwing everything he has at them. Verses 8 and 9 say that he is getting scared and he's afraid that the Israelites are going to outnumber him and rebel. And so verse 10 and 11 tell us that he sets these taskmasters over them. So these part of people who are part of his royal court. And he says, all right, you need to, to oppress them with hard labor. Um, and then verse 12 tells us that it, it backfires and they actually continue to multiply. They continue to grow so much so that the Egyptians live in dread of the people of Israel. So Pharaoh's like, well, that didn't work. So let's just like crank it up to 11. And so in verses 13 and 14, it says, listen, I I don't want you to just give them tasks. I want them to have to do it. I want you to be ruthless about it. Do you notice that twice? It says they're in ruthless service, ruthless work in verses 13 and 14. And that doesn't seem to be working. And so uh, in verse 16, it says, Uh, that he ordered the midwives uh, to kill all the sons of the Hebrew people. And that doesn't work, right? They figure out a way to circumvent that, and that doesn't work. Um, And then in verse 32, he says, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask every Egyptian, when they see a young Hebrew baby that's a boy, throw it into the Nile. What Pharaoh is doing, one commentator says um, that what Pharaoh is doing is he is throwing his royal power, his popular power, and his supernatural power all against God's people here in this passage. 
his royal power, he's ordering the taskmasters and the slaves or, and the midwives around to make them slaves. His popular power, he's ordering his people against the Hebrew people. The supernatural power, the Nile in that culture was believed to have God-like powers. And he's saying, look, I'm going to throw all of it at these people to keep them down. So there's this huge threat against God's people of both slavery and disintegration. Now, if you're paying attention or if you know the story of the Old Testament at all, you might be wondering, okay, why? Why is this happening to these particular people? Because these are God's people. These are the people who are heirs of the promises that He made way back in the beginning of Genesis. So, it mentions at the beginning of this passage, we hear about a man named Jacob who's also called Israel. Well, Jacob's grandfather is a man named Abraham. And back in Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and makes some pretty magnificent promises to Abraham. This is what he says. Number one, he says, okay, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the heavens and the sands on the seashore. I will make you into a great nation. And then he says, I will put you in a land flowing with milk and honey. You will be blessed there. It will be beautiful. You will flourish and prosper. And then he says, through your offspring, through your descendants, I will bless all the nations of the earth. So these are the promises that God makes to Abraham. And these are the people who are the recipients of those promises. So we read in verse 7 that these people are fruitful and they increase greatly. They multiply. They grow exceedingly strong. The land is filled with them. And we should think, okay, here it comes. We're about to read, right? Part number one of the promises, they're going to be an exceedingly large nation. That part seems fulfilled. And so we should think, we should expect, okay, now God's going to take them into the land and bless them, and they're going to flourish. But instead, the complete opposite happens. They're enslaved. They're oppressed. Pharaoh has got them under his thumb. So why? Why is that the case? Later on in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 9, God is speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, um, who we haven't met yet. We'll meet in chapter 2. And this is what God says through Moses to Pharaoh. He says, For this purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this purpose, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, what God is up to, what God is saying is He's saying, Listen, I intend to use all of your evil and all of your oppression, Pharaoh, to show that all of the cosmos, that I am the kind of God who saves people from slavery, who rescues people out of bondage and oppression. This is who I am. This is what I do. I am this kind of God. I set captives free. And I'm going to use you, Pharaoh, to send that message out to the entire world. Okay, now you may be thinking, all right, that's cool, Matt, but... um, What does that have to do with me? That's a great story, captivating story. What does that have to do with me? I'm not a slave. I'm not in bondage. Um, I don't serve Pharaoh. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, and what I actually think the book of Exodus is suggesting to all of us tonight, is that you may not have Pharaoh as your master, but you still have a master. You may not serve Pharaoh, but you actually still serve someone or something. There's this great song by the Avid Brothers, a number of years ago, called Ill With Want. It's a song about greed and about how greed has really gripped them. This is what they sing. I am sick with wanting. 
and it's evil and it's daunting. I am sick with wanting and it's evil how it's got me. The more I have, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I could get just a little bit more. And this is what they sing. They repeat this through the song in the chorus. Something has me. Something has me. I'm acting like someone I do not want to be. Something has me. Something has me. I'm ill with want and poisoned by this ugly greed. Do you hear that language? Something has me. It's captured me. I'm in bondage to it. I'm enslaved to it. It may not be greed for you. It may not be money or possessions for you, but you will place something at the center of your life. You can't not do that. You will grant something the power to make you happy. And as soon as you do that, you're bound to it. You're chained to it. You will grant something the power to make you happy. And as soon as you do that, it owns you. As soon as you give the approval of other people, what other people think about you, as soon as you give them the power to make you happy, they own you. It has you. Because now, when your head hits the pillow at night, you are reliving every interaction Every word that you spoke to other people, every word that was spoken to you, you're, you're, you're reliving it, scanning it for things, scanning it for approval, something to hold on to. And you enter into every, rea- every interaction with other people thinking, all right, what can I do? You're calculating, what can I do to get these people to like me? It has you. As soon as you give success the power to make you happy, It has you. It has you. Because now, every decision that you make is calculated, is weighed based on uh, how it might affect your career and your future prospects and your success. Like literally everything, everyday choices of like, should I spend time with these people or should I spend time with these people? Uh, Should I post this picture on Instagram or should I not post this picture on Instagram? Because what will a future employer think about this? Should I write these words on Facebook or should I not write these words on Facebook? Should I take this internship or that internship? Like everything is running through the grid of success. It has you. As soon as you put your own personal fulfillment, as soon as you give that the power to make you happy, As soon as you put that at the center of your being, it has you. Um, You're constantly afraid of missing out on that that elusive, epic experience. And, And so you're actually never happy. You're actually never fulfilled because wherever you are, whatever it is that you're experiencing, whatever relationship you're in, whatever moment you're experiencing, you're always wondering, is there something else better? And it actually sucks the joy out of the moments that you're actually living in the present because you're wondering... Could I be somewhere else? Should I be somewhere else where I'll be more fulfilled, more happy? As soon as you give it that power, it has you. Here's what I'm trying to say. Something has you. It's enslaved you. It's captured you. But what we see here in this passage is that once once it grabs you, it actually doesn't just enslave you. It also wants to disintegrate you. It wants to annihilate you. It wants to take you out. This is what Pharaoh is doing with the, with the Israelites. It's not enough for him just to enslave them. He also wants to kill them. In not so subtle ways. He wants to kill them. He wants to disintegrate them. There's a character 
in uh, the television show The Wire. In the first season of this show, is a, a man named Wayland, and he is deep in the throes of addiction to narcotics. And uh, he goes to a narcotics recovery meeting, and this is how he introduces himself at this meeting. I just want to read this to you. He says, I am Wayland, and I am an addict. I want to be clean today more than I want to be high. I lost a good wife. I lost a bad girlfriend. I lost the respect of anyone who tried to loan me money or do me a favor. I've got scars on my hands. I've got scars on my feet. I've had two bouts of endocarditis, hep C and whatnot, kicking down the walls and busting out windows in my liver. I am in here talking about how strong I feel. But my disease is out there in the parking lot doing push-ups on steroids waiting to kick me down the street. I've been cleaning 24 hours now, and I am still certain my disease wants me dead. See, what Wayland understands is what every addict understands. This thing doesn't just have me. It wants to kill me. It wants to disintegrate me. But I actually don't think you need to be an addict. I don't think you have to be an addict to understand this principle or even experience this principle in your life. Now, what do I mean by that? Every day, most, if not all of you, experience varying levels of stress and anxiety. Most of the time, what your stress and anxiety is, is little disintegrations, little unravelings that come from when you fail your cruel masters. Just think about what makes you anxious. Let me give you an example from my own life. I get anxious when I feel like I preach a bad sermon. And the reason I get anxious when I feel like I preach a bad sermon is because I feel like I have failed the cruel master of ministry excellence and approval. I desperately want you guys to think I'm cool. Isn't that pathetic? (laughs) Not that you guys are pathetic, but like, I'm a 31-year-old man. Why do I need the approval of 19-year-old people, right? Like, um, but it's because I feel like I failed my master, and that's why I'm anxious. It's a, little, it's a little unraveling inside my soul. It's a little disintegration inside my soul. When you feel anxious because you feel like, I wore the wrong clothes today. I feel ugly, I feel fat, and I'm pretty sure everybody else knows it. You feel anxious because... You feel like you have failed the cruel master of perpetual beauty. And that's why you feel anxious. When you feel anxious because you feel like that paper wasn't good enough, or you didn't get into the club, or you didn't get that internship, it's because you feel like you have failed the cruel master of achievement. When you get anxious because you feel like you've let down a friend, it's, it's because you feel like you have failed the cruel master of relational perfection. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Ministry excellence is a good thing. Um, Achievement and success are good things. Friendship are good things. So I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm saying they're bad masters. Good things, bad masters. Because this anxiety that you experience when you fail those masters are these little disintegrations, unravelings in your soul, reminding you that anything that you serve that is not God. Anything that you grant the power to make you happy other than God enslaves you and disintegrates you. That's what it does. St. Augustine, 4th century, he put it this way. uh, Our hearts are restless. 
Our hearts are restless. They are disintegrating unless they find their rest in God. The Bible's shorthand for this whole process is sin. Sin is not merely the breaking of some rule that you may or may not think is arbitrary. Sin is when you put something else at the center of your life. When you give something other than God the power to give meaning and hope and purpose and happiness to your life. And Exodus is telling us this story in Exodus chapter 1 and holding it up as a giant mirror and inviting us to see you serve something And if that something is not the God of the universe, it will enslave and disintegrate you. Maybe quickly, maybe slowly, but it will. That's a fairly bleak picture. Uh, That's kind of a rough way to begin the semester. But there is hope. There is hope here as well. And we get hints of it throughout the passage, mostly because... Did you notice that everything that Pharaoh tried to do failed? I mean, he threw everything he had at these people, and somehow they continued to grow. Everything that he did failed. First he thinks, okay, if I enslave them, they'll stop reproducing. And then more of them, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So then he thinks, okay, um, if I have the midwives kill their sons, then they can't reproduce or revolt because they won't be able to build an army. They won't have any men to build an army, and so then I'm really going to be okay. But that plan seems to fail. So then he says, okay, if I, if I order my entire population to kill any Hebrew son, throw them into the Nile, then surely I can keep these people down. But what we learn in chapter 2 is that actually the very man who will eventually lead Israel out of Egypt, when he is born, he is thrown into the Nile and then pulled out of the Nile by Pharaoh's own daughter, And then because he was pulled out of the Nile by by Pharaoh's own daughter, he is then raised in a position, in in the household, in a position of power and influence so that that was the only way. He was the only person who actually had the power and influence to eventually lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So even that plan backfired. At every turn, just when it seems like evil has won, it's thwarted. And nowhere else in the Bible is that more clear than on the cross. Nowhere else is that more clear than when Jesus is on the cross. Because at this point, it's not just Israel's sons, plural, that are being threatened. But it's Israel's son. The true Israelite. The very son of God who is being threatened. And it looks like evil has won because God's own son is beaten and hung on a cross and killed. And it looks like defeat for God. But it's actually victory. Why? Because Jesus on the cross is the one who is being disintegrated. The one who is being unraveled. The one who is being killed. All that sin can do is placed upon him and he is being treated as though all of our sin belongs to him so that we in turn can be treated as though all of his righteousness belongs to us. It's victory. So Jesus in the New Testament says, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. It's the opposite of slavery. It's freedom. It's not a cruel master anymore. It's a master who gives rest and not heavy burdens. 
And then Paul pushes it a little bit further. The Apostle Paul, he says, listen, anyone who is in Christ, anyone who is trusting the free gift that Christ has offered by His death and resurrection is a new creation. It's the opposite of disintegration. It's the opposite of unraveling. It's being recreated. It's being remade. It's being healed and put back together. See, every other master... Every other master, anyone or anything else that you grant the power to make you happy eventually says, die for me. And then maybe, maybe I'll give you a little bit of life. But Jesus, the true master says, no, no, no. I will do the dying. I will die for you. And then I will give you my life. So come to him. Uh, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. And be set free and be remade.